John was an eyewitness. He was an eyewitness of Jesus. And he heard with his own ears the prophetic and authoritative words of Christ concerning eternal life. He saw with his own eyes the powerful works of Christ that confirmed his messianic identity as the promised in the Hebrew Bible. So what we find here in Scripture, in our Bibles, brothers and sisters, is not just some, you know, flimsy, you know, good news, right? Like uh, the Lakers, Sports Center, oh, you know, they won game one, and then all of a sudden you're all sad because, oh, they got blasted game two, and then, oh, yeah, well, I'm happy again because we destroyed them in game three, right? It, it, it doesn't fluctuate. No, the, the good news that John presents to us is, is timeless. It is eternal. It is cosmic. It speaks to our fallen nature. It speaks to our hearts. It, it answers the deep longings that we have and the big questions of life. So what we have here in John, what we will study today in this passage, is a divine proclamation of good news. So to help us understand this good news, this big news of the true vine, let's start in your first point on the outline, creation, cultivation, and covenant. John 1, verse 1. Let me read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John's prologue reveals the identity of Jesus as the eternal divine logos, the Word. He's the eternal Son, right? The Word was already in the beginning and did not come into being. He, he's distinct from God the Father, right, in his personhood. Notice that he was with God and He's also identical to the Father in nature. He was God. So contrary to these false teachings from Jehovah Witnesses and other Christian cults, Jesus is not a distinct little G God with his own divine nature. No, 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 brothers and sisters. The Hebrew Bible and the New Testament reveal, unfold, and teach the Trinitarian existence of God. This means that there's only one God in essence, in nature, who eternally exists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory, and so on and so forth. And, and, and let me let you guys know, this is not a logical contradiction, because God is not one in three in the same sense. The Bible's not teaching that there are three gods in one God. That would be the same sense, a logical problem, a contradiction. No, no, no. Instead, there are three divine persons who are distinct in terms of their who-ness to one another. The Father is not the Son and the Spirit. The Son is not the Father, so on and so forth. The distinction is in their personal relations and not in their whatness. So then, according to John in chapter 1, it is this triune God, not just any old God that we can imagine, that was before the beginning and brought forth creation out of nothing. If you draw your eyes to verses 3 and 4 of John chapter 1, you see that John credits Jesus for this creative act as the one who inherently possesses life. And if you were to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you would see that God brings forth creation by the power of his word. Right? He starts forming the earth, causing vegetation to sprout, Plants are yielding, trees are growing, they're bearing fruit after their kind. And then we see in chapter 2 of Genesis that God would create humanity, male and female, Adam and Eve to be exact, 
in his image. And he would plant them. He would plant them, key word, in this garden called Eden, a vineyard of sorts, where he would specially dwell with man. Now this sets up the scene for us in the next point, A, cultivating fruitfulness. In Genesis 1.28 and Genesis 2.15, which you see on your slide there, the Lord blesses his image bearers. He commissions them to cultivate and keep the garden, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to rule over it. It's interesting in Genesis 2.15 that these words cultivate and keep are also used elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, speaking of the priest in the tabernacle and temple, which were the dwelling place of God, the porthole to the heavens, serving, guarding. So there's parallels here. It's intentional. What we're seeing in Genesis is this picture of a, of a God commissioning his image bearers as these like literal spiritual farmers serving in the presence of God as worshipers, bearing fruit, guarding, and seeking to spread the beauties and glories of Eden all over the earth. That's paradise, is it not? It's this picture of just like lushness, of, of fruitfulness, of, of greenery, all for the glory of God in the Lord's vineyard. But our story turns for the worse, does it not? Instead of cultivating, instead of fruitfulness, we see death, we see darkness, we see toil. The serpent in chapter 3 enters into the garden, tempts Adam and Eve, and what happens? Instead of abiding in the words of God, they disconnect themselves from the Lord of life, they sin, rebelled, and instead of Adam crushing the head of the serpent, he chooses to trust and remain in the lies of Satan. And so God judges this act of treason. He's a holy God. He's just. And we see in Genesis chapter 3, man's exile from the garden of life, from the presence of God. But the Lord is ever so faithful. Amen? As he was active in creation, he would be active again in redemption. And he would do so he would do so through covenanting with Abraham, promising to make his seed a great nation and catch the word again, planting them as a vine in the land of Canaan by which he would bless the Gentile world and restore the creation. So we move from cultivating fruitfulness to point B on your outline, covenant fruitlessness. The Hebrew Bible uses this imagery of the vine and the vineyard to trace this covenantal story of Israel, of bearing fruit anew among God's people. In your personal devotions, you can look at Psalm 80, and you can look at the, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 5 in particular. He sings of this like happy expectation of fruit's going to come back again. And, and, and you'll, you'll notice in Isaiah 5 that He's not like just singing like, you know, like, no, he's, he is singing, brothers and sisters. He's throwing down. He's killing these notes. He's like KC from Jodeci, ripping his vocals on MTV Unplugged. He's like Usher doing the Superstar Challenge. Like, you're hearing this and you're like, oh my, this is so good, God. Oh, this is amazing. I'm hearing the melodies of Eden, of restoration coming back again. 
But just like Adam and Eve, the story turns for worse. They sin. And rather than that expectation of fruitfulness, of obedience, of justice, of righteousness, this good, rich fruit, what do we see in the song? Israel, the vine, produced only worthless grapes of bloodshed and distress. So what you're going to find in the Old Testament storyline of Israel is this chosen vine planted by God, covenantal language, doesn't end up doing what God requires of them. They, they cannot bear the fruit that the Lord would want them to bear. And so there's judgment. There's exile. And you also have in the prophets not just judgment language, but prophets are just, they have this like deep longing for fruitfulness and they, and they look to the day, they look to the day in which the Lord would send someone to fix this problem of fruitlessness to restore that Edenic state of fruit-bearing and to see the whole world become the Lord's vineyard. And so, brothers and sisters, coming back to John, chapter 1, what we're seeing, this creator God, as he acted in creation, he now acts in redemption. And he does so, through point C on your outline, Christ's faithfulness. Christ's faithfulness. Jesus takes center stage in this redemptive story of God's vineyard, and he does so not from a distance. If you look at John chapter 1, verse 14, draw your eyes there. What does it say? It says, the word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt among us. It's the eternal son, the second person of the triune Godhead, becoming incarnate. As Pastor Matt says, the, the carne asada, but really it's carne. It's human flesh, right? The son becomes man, takes on a human nature, and he is the promised one that Moses, the law, and the prophets look forward to. You can look with your eyes in verse 16 of 18, and it talks about Jesus ultimately being that apex, the manifestation of God's glory, grace, truth, and covenant-keeping faithfulness. So John drives this point home for us by, by focusing on the works and the words of Jesus. And, and he likes the number seven as it, as it points to this whole idea of completion. And as you can see in these I am statements, they're revealing Jesus' identity, they're, identica uh, they're authenticating him as the Messiah, revealing him as, as, as very God, truly God, who is one with the Father. But it's not just that Jesus talks, like he's not just blowing smoke, right? He's not just all talk. His, his works are in line with his words, and he proves who he is. So you'll see these, these sayings and these works actually correspond. When he says, I am the light of the world, oh, so you guys really know, guess what? I'm going to heal a blind man. I am the bread of life. I think you guys must have forgot about that. So let me feed 5,000 with five packs of Wonder Bread and two fish. I am the resurrection and the life. Oh, but if you doubt that, let me make this dead man live again. And so Jesus' first works and words, he covers those, right? In chapters 1 through 12, those I am's, the, the list that you just saw. And by the time we get to chapter 15... By the time we get to our text, Jesus is now in the upper room 
He's in the middle of his final word, his farewell discourse to his disciples who are terrified, who are scared. It's a fearful time. Their Messiah is leaving them soon. He's, he's going to glory. That is, he's going to face the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's going to leave them. But oh, how gracious is our Messiah, is he not? He pulls them together and he seeks to prepare them as a new community called the church, encouraging them through the promise of the Holy Spirit to abide and commune with Christ. So let's get to our text. Point two, church and communion. Church and communion. These disciples will soon be in commission. They're going to bear fruit. They're going to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. But as we've been studying this storyline, they don't need to be afraid. Why? Because they were never meant to be the vine. They're simply branches, not expected to bear fruit on their own. For God's plan A was always that Jesus, as the true vine, and the Father, as the vine dresser, would be, point A, the sole producers of fruit. The sole producers of fruit. So let's look at John 15. Turn to John 15. Let's dive into verses 1 through 2. Verses 1 through 2. The Word of God says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. John has revealed time and time again in his gospel the inseparable work of the Son of God and God the Father. The Son speaks only what the Father has revealed. He works in every way that the Father works, and he carries out the will that the Father has commissioned him to do. So let's look at their roles, and, and we'll begin with our first producer, the vine. Here we see in, in verse 1, another declaration of Jesus' identifying himself as the, with the divine glory of the great I Am in Exodus. He's saying he's God. And so as the divine Messiah, his work as the true vine does two things, okay? Two things. One, as the Savior of the world from sin and the wrath to come, he is the source of life. And two, as the Lord who conquers sin and death and the world through his resurrection, he defines life. You see, the metaphor of the vine in the storyline of the Bible reinforces this, right? Adam and Israel failed to produce the fruit God required. And does this not shed light on our own story in humanity? Have we not also failed to produce the fruit God requires? In Adam, as our representative, we too, like we inherit this fallen state, this, this state of fruitlessness. We have a rebellious heart, an inability to individually bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, patient, kindness, and gentleness, and self-control. These are commendable virtues, are they not? But man, how they fluctuate in our lives, no? And this spills over to the lack of communal or collective fruit in society such as justice, shalom, human flourishing, and stewardship that God intends for his world to be full of. We're all fruitless. We're failures. But Jesus fulfills every aspect that humanity was called to do. 
As he says in verse 1, I am the true vine. He's the true Israel, the one and only vine capable of giving life and bearing the fruit of righteousness, love, holiness, giving true revelation of God the Father, bringing blessing and salvation to the world. But brothers, this, this doesn't mean that Jesus all of a sudden swallows up the nation of Israel. No, nor does it mean that the church somehow replaces or displaces Israel. No, disciples of Jesus are just branches. And th this is the point of our lesson, no? His followers are not and will never be the vine. So then, Jesus as the true vine actually gives assurance and good news and hope to both Israel and the nations. What this means is that Jesus takes front and center as Israel's Messiah and representative and becomes the only source by which the nation can partake in its strategic role of Abrahamic blessing. And then for the nations, this means that there's no other vine by which they must be saved to experience that universal blessing that will flow from Jesus' Davidic kingdom. So we see here that Jesus' identification as the true vine is a universal and exclusive claim for being the source and definer of life. There's no other organization, no other ideology, philosophy, person, sense of spirituality, no self-help guru, no, no religion that can provide, no other religion, the life-giving power to bear fruit. Surely there are false vines, and these vines will only produce sour grapes. And we know this because there is only one true vine who has come as God in the flesh to remedy this problem by dying to atone for our sin and rising from the dead to show that that Venmo transaction went through. That work was finished. Eternal life, then, is found in none other than Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And as an exhortation, brothers and sisters, oh, would we stop seeking and working for that which does not produce that abundant, rich life in Christ. Let's forsake those false vines and turn to the true vine. But it's not only the true vine who's a sole producer in our story, we also see that there's another who ensures fruitfulness, that is, God the Father, point two, the vine dresser as the gardener, or gardener. You see, again, there's a story and understand, there's a beauty in understanding this storyline, okay? this context of the Lord's vineyard. That same gardener that we kind of saw in Isaiah 5 and you'll see in 27 that was working faithfully then, well, he's still working faithfully in John 15. And he's doing what he always does. The Father keeps, protects, waters, and maintains the vineyard. And he's perfect at it too, flawless. He, he's not like my wife and I. My, my wife's going to be like, oh, Marcelo, why did you share this one? Because we're plant people. I mean, we got the humidifier. We literally have names for our plants. We talk to our plants. But literally alongside of our house, there's a graveyard of plants that literally just, just dead. This winter was just rough on our babies. Like we couldn't control the temperature like nighttime, morning time, how it's cold. And then during the day, it's night. Like we got the heater going and they're just, they're just dying. Like we struggled. 
But the great master gardener, the father, oh, he has the greenest of thumbs. Let's look at verse 2 again. Notice two ways in which the father perfectly keeps the vineyard. First, verse 2. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Notice, the purpose of the father's pruning is actually loving. God does it so that we would be more fruitful, even though it's painful, no? The authors of Hebrews chapter 12, he provides another image for us, and it's one of, of a father-son relationship and discipline. And, and he talks about, man, th this is not joyful, it's, it's kind of sorrowful, it hurts, but oh, is it good, why? Verse 10, so that we may share in, the holiness, in his holiness. And although it might not be joyful, verse 11, but if we're trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, I would be completely oblivious to the many things that go in the life of the church if I didn't pause there to reflect on the implications of this. That the Lord lovingly prunes us as his children through, through hardships, through, through discipline, through rebuke, and even cutting off some of the good things, no? And, and I'm sure with a, a, you know, a congregation this size, there's many of us that are under that pruning effect like right now, you know? And, and it does hurt. And you know, pain, the pain of pruning, it, it can often weaken us from pressing into the Lord. Sin kind of has a way of like creeping in, you know, and, and drawing us to, to have a callous heart and, and begin to doubt God's, you know, faithfulness and care of us. But family, please, do not let your sorrow discourage you. Don't lose heart. Let the eyes of your heart instead see that your heavenly Father is never closer to you than when he's pruning to you. Think about it. In order to be pruned, you must be in his loving hands. And how wonderful is that to be, regardless of how difficult and hard it may be. So, so press on, brothers and sisters. If there's sin, don't justify, don't push back. Own it. Repent. Accept the pruning. If there's hardship, look to the author and perfecter of your faith who suffered as well for the joy set before him. Now, brothers, the Father doesn't only prune, right? But he also takes away. Look at verse 2 once more. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, Jesus' words here have often caused a lot of fear over the thought of losing one's salvation. But I think this is the case because a lot of pastors really don't put in the work to preach the text, and they don't pull out what's in the text, which is the glory of a perfect God working to bear fruit, right? The vine and the sovereign care of the Father. And it's sad to say that, that many churches fail to proclaim this. Rather than John 15 being a text that encourages and motivates disciples to trust in Jesus, to lean in by faith, to, to abide in his words, recall, these are the disciples. They're terrified. Jesus is encouraging them. Instead, we have these bootlegger preachers who for their own selfish gain, pure selfishness for whatever reason, they use the gospel to enslave people in fear by lifting up 
moralism, by, by making it a works-based religion and, and banging the law over their heads. And they never preached Jesus as the center of God's redemptive purposes and the source of life for all those who follow him. But what have we learned thus far? We're terrible failures, incapable of bearing fruit, and we need the faithfulness of Christ to do what we could never do. We're merely branches, brothers and sisters. It's not our work. The perfect work is in the vine. It's in the vine dresser. And so the taking away here, right, it serves two purposes for us, okay? It serves two purposes for us. You're catching the two purposes, you know, the kind of theme that I'm laying out for you guys. One, it gives assurance to the believer and encourages the disciple to simply be connected to the vine. For salvation is given not by works, not within ourselves, but in the producers of life who are perfect at what they do. Just take a look at um, some of the passages in John. And, and I'm only going to look at John 10, 25 to 30. But Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one, as we sang, will snatch them, snatch them out of my hand. My father, right? No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the Father are one. Of course, skeptics will look at these verses, right? And they say that the witness of Scripture is like a, it's like a cacophony of unharmonious sounds and contradictions. But the truth is that the Bible is, is comprised of a diverse orchestra where each genre and book is playing in harmony with one another, telling of the one monergistic work of God, through the inseparable operations of the divine persons who share the one divine nature to secure a salvation once and for all. Amen? But we don't have to go through an entire study, brothers and sisters. We actually don't have to go too far. We can just check out the trombone playing going to town in verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. See what Jesus says. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. This refers to Jesus' beginning, you know, his farewell discourse right in the upper room, John 13, verse 10 through 11. He's washing the feet of the, of the disciples. Peter's like, nah, Lord, you ain't touching my stank fate. No, 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 you're a king. Like, this is not something that you should be doing. But then Jesus says, no, 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 if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. All right? And so the foot washing actually so serves a twofold purpose. One, it's, it's an example for the disciples to follow. And the other, secondly, it's, it's an illustration of the cleansing from sin and impurity that they would receive through Jesus' death on the cross. Just as the Lord humbled himself to clean their dirty, stank feet, he would endure humiliation on the cross to cleanse the filth of sin and remove the stench of sin and death for his people. But what's interesting here in John 13 is that Jesus says, but not all of you are clean. You see, he knew that Judas was going to betray him, so he said this. The point here that Jesus is making in the foot washing then is the taking away of branches that do not bear fruit is this. This is the second point. 
There's no security for the fruitless because they have chosen to be and were never connected to the source of life divine. There's only two branches, Judas branches and cleansed branches. And apart from the cleansing work of Jesus on the cross, we would all be those Judas branches. I mean, think of this. All of the disciples abandoned and rejected Jesus, no? Peter denied him three times. Thomas was the doubting Thomas. Didn't really believe till the very end. And then those Emmaus disciples were literally crushed and hopeless and defeated because they thought their Savior was dead. No? But what does Christ do? Christ is the one that gathers them, restores them, saves them, calls them. And yet Judas is left disconnected because he never believed. They, he wasn't cleansed. Unlike by the grace of the other disciples or the grace of God towards the other disciples, which is they were connected to the gracious life-nourishing sap of the vine. Would you take consideration of this, brothers and sisters? Count the cost. Think about it. Friends who may not, you know, know Jesus at this moment, there's a cleansing for sin, and it's found in Jesus. Shall you trust in him for that cleansing? Shall you be that Judas branch, you know, that kind of plays the role, is associated to the vine, but never really connected? not in Christ. Consider these themes, brothers and sisters. Look, the Bible's clear. You cannot lose your salvation, but there are those who are deceived and assume they are safe when they are not truly connected to Jesus. There's a false assurance that, that many have in the church, which, which Jesus in the Gospels actually seek to expose. If you were to look at Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and he's referring to people that are calling upon the name of the Lord, and they're doing a bunch of things in the name of God, prophesying, casting out demons. But to these, he says, depart from me because you practice lawlessness and did not do the will of his Father. Pastor Matt, in his sermon series a couple of years back, The Christmas Vine, teaching on this text, he provided some characteristics that false disciples tend to place or bank their assurance on. So I'll put those up for you to, to look at real quick. And what's really insightful about this is that these activities or characteristics, they neither give evidence to or refute one's faith. In other words, there are things that like natural fallen man can do, right? Visible morality. On the outside, it looks beautiful, their actions, but inside, they're dead and unclean. Intellectual knowledge, I mean, they know stuff, but like demons, they know facts about God, but they, they don't honor them, right? There's even religious participation, like they're kicking it with the people of God. They're, they're practicing these spiritual disciplines, but they're not truly partakers in the, the divine life by faith. And lastly, there, there's that conviction of sin or or, or better yet, I should put it, they have a remorse or a guiltiness for like the consequences. They don't like the stuff that's going on, the results of their sin, but they never really truly mortify, kill sin. And there's no transformation through, 
through the gift of repentance. And recall, 2 Timothy 2.25 tells us that repentance is granted as a gift by God. So in the end, brothers, these type of shoots, these Judas branches are, are ultimately harmful to the work of the vine. They don't bear fruit, they cause division, and they, they seek to derail and stunt the mission of God. And since the Father perfectly cares for his vineyard, loves his vineyards, and desires to see the whole earth restored and filled with the fruit for his glory, a final judgment concerning these branches awaits. Look at verse 6 with me. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. These are tough words, no? But the reality is that there is a judgment that awaits us all. The Bible says that after death, it comes judgment. Ten, ten, out of people, ten out of ten people die, and those ten out of ten are going to face judgment. We will face our creator Jesus, who shall judge us for the kind of fruit that we produce in our own lives. And the scriptures say, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor a bad tree produce good fruit. So by their fruits you will know them. Like, we're, we're not going to be able to fool Jesus. There's not one of those, you know, like how, how pop culture likes to do, like, oh, I'm going to just get in, you know, the back door, like, oh, what's up, Jesus? You know, like, it, it's not going to happen that way. We won't be able to pretend church in the sight of God's holiness and a false connection with Jesus. It, it's not going to hold up under the scrutiny of God's cosmic courtroom. But here's the thing. The warning of judgment, like, it's not the end in itself. This, this judgment is actually a means to, to wake you up. So you see the, the destruction that awaits you, and, and it reminds you that in the midst of judgment, there is good news. Not in yourself, but in Jesus. Jesus is that true vine. He's, he's the one that cleanses you from your sin through the washing of regeneration and brings you into union with himself by the indwelling Holy Spirit. So then, like, be found in him. Like, let his righteousness cover your iniquities. A abide in him now as the source of eternal life and power to overcome your fruitless life. Brothers and sisters, we we've studied thus far these soul producers, the vine, the gardener. Let's move to our, our second section, the particularities or characteristics of fruitfulness. And we're going to move much more quickly in, the, in these sections. First thing we're going to see is that fruit bearing, fruit bearing is by grace alone. It is grace. Look at verses 4 through 5. And, and we're going to see, Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do what? Nothing. The branch cannot provide its own life or nourishment. That's the picture of the metaphor, no? Like, obvious. <laughs> like, he needs to receive his life from the vine. And none of us have the ability or power to produce those good fruits. We're weak, we're sinners, and without the revival of the Spirit, we are branches that are good for nothing but kindling of a flame. 
And this truth, brothers and sisters, it, it hits hard against our culture and the world's values. Like our Western culture really loves production. Like we admire that self-determination. We like that, you know, from, from the ashes we rise type of narratives, you know, rags to riches. But just imagine going to like a job interview that you really want and just magnifying all of your weaknesses. Hi, you know, my name is Marcelo, like I'm insecure, I'm self-preserving, jealous, lazy, I'm a liar, a deceiver, a cheat. Um, I got fired one time because I, I took the company car and, and ended up breaking the garage. Um, and truth be told, like, I, I'm not going to be able to do anything for you. Let me, how, how do you think that's going to go? Pretty good, no? No, not at all. Because weakness is not something that's valued in our culture. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient to you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. You see, the Christian life is one of role reversal. The foolish shame the wise, the weak overcome the strong, the lowly are lifted high in honor, and the powerful are brought down low. Right? The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. The blind now see, but those that see are actually judged in their blindness for their self-righteousness. In the economy of God, it's so distinct from this fallen world. It's one of grace, and it's one wholly centered upon the work of Jesus and the Father. So then branches operate out of weakness, and they solely rest on the power of God. So just a quick question is, like, how are you resting? Right? We're going to talk about abiding shortly, but how are you abiding in the vine? What does that look like in your everyday life right now? Now, implication of this fruit-bearing, you know, being by grace is also that it requires godliness. And, and by this I mean humility, for humility is, is the condition by which a disciple follows and abides in the vine. Proverbs 22.4 connects humility with fearing God. Psalm 25.9 declares that the Lord teaches the humble his way. Proverbs 3.5 counsels us not to lean on our own understanding, but to humble ourselves by trusting in the Lord with all of our hearts. Family, Pride kills. It kills communion with Christ and others. A proud man is like a bull in a china shop. All he's good for is destruction and division. Is it not? So then, fruit bearing is not only by grace, not only requires godliness, but it's ultimately for the glory of God. Look at verse 8. In this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what's the chief end of man? The answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Ephesians talks about we are God's workmanship created to do good works. Romans talks about in chapter 14, verses 7 to 8, for not one of us lives for himself, not one of us dies for himself, for if we live... We live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are 
the Lord's. Family, we, we, we have to understand what's at stake here. The impact of fruitlessness is it's not like little pieces of branches that will end up serving a little cute campfire for s'mores. Fruitlessness literally robs God of the glory that belongs to him alone. And you see, there, there are certain things that belong together. So if I say peanut butter, you say? If I say salt, you say? If I say arroz, you say? Frijoles. Come on, guys. Right? Fruit and God's glory go together like arroz and frijoles, some sweet gallo pinto. But so often fruit bearing is positioned in this like moralistic, self-centered, therapeutic like kind of way. Preachers will say like, are you lacking fruit in your life? Are you void of that fruitfulness? Well, here are 3.7 steps on how to bear more fruit in your life so you can experience that blessed life. Right? The fruit becomes this like highly individualized, like self-focused endeavor to make much of who? Ourselves. Not God. But this is far from the truth, right? And it actually robs us from that abundant life that Jesus talks about. Fruit bearing is not for ourselves. The fruit of the Christian life is it's not the accumulation of of blessings, prosperity, materials, and comfort. And this is why we're laboring to study this text. This is why we want to know the story of God's vineyard, so that we can make sense of our place, situate ourselves in God's purpose, in his mission, in his story. Amen? What we have been saved for is not for our own liking, it's not for our own pleasures, but we've been appointed to go and bear fruit for the glory of God, which we'll touch on very shortly. So, if fruit is for the glory of God and and if it's for the honor due His name, then logically what flows is that those who bear fruit, they give evidence that they're connected to the vine, that they are what? Point four, they are part of the grind. Look at verse 8 with me again. By this my Father is glorified that you bear fruit, much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus will go on to tell his disciples just a few verses later. You can, you can go to verse 20 of chapter 15. It says, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Look at verse 18 as well. It says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. The Christian walk is not easy believism. It's not your best life now. It's not this over-realized kind of, you know, eschatology of seeking to go establish, you know, a culturally, like, infused and nationalistic kingdom of of comfort and, dare I say, meaningful balance. No, those things are good. They're not evil. The fact of the matter is that fruit-bearing brothers and sisters, it's hard. The brother that helped me with this outline, like he used a good word when he picked grind. And the world and places like Los Angeles, even with the common graces of God, can be a difficult place to serve 
for so many reasons. And, and I'm standing with you all as, as one of your brothers in the Lord, okay? Like, I'm acknowledging this pressure. Like, I, I'm not here lording over you all, like trying to bash you with the law, like, let's grind. No, no, dear fellow saints, please hear me out. Please hear me out. The truth is, the grind is evidence or the fruit of discipleship. And, and this is not coming from my own mouth. You know, so, so I'm explaining this text to you guys, this text of scripture, like one who's physically up here, but, but literally, like my heart is sitting with you guys right now. Like under the teaching of God's word, like this is for myself. This is for us. Seeking God to nourish us and strengthen us to obey, to grind. Our vine, like he, he's the source of life. He's the one that defines what our lives are to be. And our great master gardener, like he's the one in his omniscience, the great God in his powerful providence, planted us in this church on the west side of Los Angeles. And it's his word, his word alone, that literally calls us to deny ourselves, to pick up the cross and follow him. They're his words, beloved, his words. Unless we grow frustrated with that, because the difficulties on mission in L.A. are real, let's all be reminded, like myself included, let's be encouraged that we don't bear this grind, we don't bear this fruit, we don't glorify God on our own. Like, it's his doing, it's it's his vineyard. Like, we're fruitful, we grind because the vine nourishes his branches with his word for the sake, like, of our joy. Like, look at verse 11 with me, brothers. L listen to what it says. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Remember, the disciples are scared. They're terrified. And yet Jesus, the night before, like he's, he's preparing them and he's going to show them that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Like surely, like this had to be some other world, eternal, like limitless joy that comes from like the infinite nature of God. Because who would die for enemies, right? And yet Christ, like he humbled himself with joy, and he died in obedience to the Father's mission. And Christ then calls his disciples to abide in his words, and he thereby grants us the very same out-of-this-world joy through union with him. He fills our cup so that it overflows, so that we can bear fruit, so that we can glorify him, and show the world that discipleship it's not like merely a grind. The word captures it. But in the end, like, it's a gift. It's like a delightful treasure and, and the highest honor granted, right, to fruitless branches, Judas branches, grafted in by grace, grafted in by love. Like, what a privilege that we have to be caught up in this story. So family, we've, we've covered the producers of fruit. We, we've discussed some of the particularities of fruit bearing that only the vine and the vine dresser can create. 
Now let's move to our third and final section of our passage, and that's point C, the permanence. The permanence. If Christ the Father provides the only salvific nutrients for fruitfulness, which is by grace, for His glory, then, then what do we make of the branches? They were never meant to be the vine, right? They don't produce life. They can't do anything apart from the vine. They can't do anything in and of themselves. Then how do these branches respond to the vine? How do they respond to Christ? Well, branches are nothing less and nothing more than branches. We don't save ourselves, but we what? Permanecer. It's a Spanish word for permanence. And it's the word used for abiding and remaining in Christ. John uses this word 11 times in this chapter to convey this like continual, vital, and permanent connection that disciples have in their communion with Christ. Verse 7, if you look at it quickly, it seems to indicate that abiding has to do with letting the words of Jesus dwell in us richly. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. But let's just, let's dig a little bit deeper. This, this connection to Jesus... And, and what we're going to see is that abiding is not just some rigid, cold, or, or heartless, like mental assent to some jeopardy facts about Jesus. A abiding is, is a genuine connection fueled by the Trinitarian amor, love of God, between the Father and the Eternal Son. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you abide in my love time doesn't permit for us to unpack the depths of Jesus' words here but i believe the picture of uh, of spouses loving one another in a home is going to convey like this security and confidence that it brings to to children right like so you, you know in a house when there's discord and there's a lot of drama and tension and parents are are at each other's throats like kids literally feel that you know they'll, they'll like run away and hide like they'll shudder They'll even cry, like, you know, at the hint of, of violence and, like, disruption. And, and to my own shame, to, to my own shame, I, I, you know, there's been times where I just come home cranky and I'm just selfish and I'm, I'm caught in my, in my little moods and I'm, I'm snappy with my wife. And, and literally, like, you can sense the whole house just, like, shrivel up and, like, the kids are literally tiptoeing around in the house. But by the moment, you know, by the moment, you know, I reconciled with my wife, like, I asked for forgiveness and, and, and we start loving each other. Literally, man, I, you've already seen my crazy little monkeys. Like, these fools just start running around, laughing, hugging, kissing. Like, they got, just got this swag. Like, just, man, I could do anything in this house. You know, and then I have to tell Seba, yo, relax, bro, too much. Right? But, but the point is, this parental, spousal love, like, it's life-giving. Like, we see it in the home with our kids. How much more is it when we're incorporated into the love of the triune God? How much more? So we see abiding in, in Jesus is not just some cold communion. It, and it's also not some like ethereal, like hippie, magical experience. You know, our brother Landy likes to talk about like this kundalini spirit, you know, where we, where we start shaking and moving, like hoping the, the love of God tells us something, you know. It's not that extreme either. Most definitely, yes, we abide by resting in the love of God. We just talked about it. But Jesus gives a concrete definition for what it means to remain in Jesus' love. 
Point two on your outline. Abiding, then in Jesus, loves, means to acatar. Another Spanish word for obey. Look at verses 10 through 11. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. It's the simple yet profound obedience of Christ to the will of the Father that is the basis for our abiding. Like Jesus, we abide in love by obeying the commandments of God. Like, I cannot say to my life, oh, you know, sing her all these sweet sonnets and like serenade her and try to woo her, you know, with my lips and mouth and then literally just go break covenant in all the particularities. Like, that's, that's, that's just not love, no? It's not. I'm actually rejecting her by my actions, no? It's not good at all. And, and the reason it's not good is because obedience is ultimately the, the evidence of true love. It's not that we obey, obey out of compulsion or like this cold obligation, like I have to do this. No, no love is, is responsive, right? We're, we're not obeying to, to establish our connection, right, with our spouse or in this case with Jesus. No, the, the gardener grafts us into Jesus by grace and the vine provides us with life through his love. So then we're not obeying to gain the Lord's affection, but it's, it's a response to the gracious love of God that he first lavished on us. And as a result of God's love, then, then we abide through obedience. And, and this obedience, listen, brothers and sisters, as we move on to, to point three, it, it's meant to be expressed and experienced with one another. And we see this in verses 12 through 17. And I'm going to read this quickly and just kind of work through the text because uh, our time is coming to a close. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. You notice how the Lord is, is centering his love in, in this new community. It's the church. And, and this love in the church is to be it's rooted and marked out by, by one thing alone. It, it's not politics. It's, it's not preferences. But it's the sacrificial love of Christ. And it's through Jesus' sacrificial love that a new and unique relationship with God and one another is created. Verse 15, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. We use this term friend of God pretty loosely in the church nowadays. I mean, there's some funny pop evangelical songs, and, and they are funny, you know. Jesus is a friend of mine. I have a friend in Jesus. Right? But the reality is, there's less than like a handful of instances in the Bible prior to Jesus' coming where where anyone is called like a friend of God. Like servants, they follow directions. But they're not necessarily intimately connected and known. So, so what we're seeing is Jesus is establishing like this, this primary commitment relationship, not you know, to biological or familial relationships, 
not in relationships vested in, in similarities or, or shared interests, not in camps that like, I belong to or represent my core values and commitments best. No, he's establishing this great and real love between intimate friends only in the life of the church. Like, you can't get this. You can't experience this, this heavenly love anywhere else. There is no kind of friendship with God anywhere else except for among his church, his redeemed. Is it not? And so the last part that I just kind of want to leave you with is, is this notion of loving one another. Like, how is this possible? It seems kind of discouraging in our times, no? Like, think of the disciples. Like, I was talking to one of my brothers as I was preparing for uh, this sermon, and he brought up, like, man, you ever realize, like, the disciples were, like, immature teenagers, like, literal teenagers, and they, they fought all the time. Like, they did not get along. They were always jockeying for power. Like, they were always at each other's throats. Like, well, what's Jesus talking about with him? Like, what's going on over here? Can I sit at his right hand or at his left hand? Like, like you got to recall, like, God is... Like, he's calling and creating a community of, like, diverse backgrounds. Like, there's a zealot who loves Rome. There's a, tax, like, a zealot who hates Rome. There's a tax collector who, like, you know, he's in cahoots with Rome. Like, there's ethnocentric, poor peasant, like, fishing families, like, who are thinking, like, Rome is about to just get axed. Then there's, like, a traitor among them who's, like, you know, pocketing money, like, in his, like, bags, like, here and there. Like, this is just, like, a ragtag group of, ungrateful, scared, like nationalistic, ethnocentric, selfish people. And yet, when you study the book of Acts, what do you see? You see the Spirit of God amongst God's people, not void of problems, persecution without and persecution within, and somehow, some way, the gospel, fruit is being born, produced for the glory of God, people are getting saved, People are getting grafted into this life, soul-thrilling, joy-producing vine. What a comfort is that, no? Because we kind of face the same troubles and the same fears and the same things that the disciples were going through that night. Same confusion, same drama, same dilemmas. But oh, how sweet is it that God's word still speaks today? That our passage of Jesus being the true vine speaks to us today. And so we'll close with this. Point three, conclusion and commitments. Jesus is the true vine and his father is the vine dresser. So then by the shedding of his blood, as we consider the table, as we come to the table, to the Lord's simple, the Lord's uh, table, to observe his elements in communion, let's be cleansed from our guilty conscience and sin and let's abandon half-heartedness. Let, let's quit pretending to possess eternal life, but rather would we come to Jesus where we come to the vine and trust in him to have a genuine real vibrant connection with Jesus let's quit the games and let, let let's let Christ take possession by faith so that we may utter the same words of Paul from the depths of our soul I have been crucified with Christ it is I no longer who live but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus is the true vine and his father is the vine dresser. 
So then, as represented in the bread that we are going to partake in, by the breaking of his body on the cross that unites us to him, let, let, let's abide in him. Right? For those who came energized and strengthened in the Lord, like, press on all the more, like in light of the scripture reading that we had. Like, excel all the more. Find practical ways to abide in Jesus all the more. And for those who came in weak and wilted this morning from the weight of, of worldliness or the grind of just seeking to sacrifice and serve the Lord amid hardships, brothers and sisters, press into Jesus' love. Be refreshed by his joy. You were never meant to do it on your own. So abide. His body was broken for you. Two more points. Jesus is the true vine and his father, the vine dresser. So then as we partake of the Lord's Supper together as one body united by grace in Jesus, let us adopt humility. Church, Christ gives us life and defines our life and roles in this family. There's no room for pride, boasting, division, partiality. Like, we're saved by grace. Like, we're branches apart from him set for the fire. Like, none of us is actually special but him. So then we can be slow to speak, slow to judge, slow to give criticism, gossip, slander, slow to become angry with one another, and we can be quick to listen, to confess sin, our shortcomings, quick to forgive, to give grace when we're hurt by another, and quick to assume the best in one another in Christ. God the Father has been so loving to us to plant us together here at Del Rey to experience his love and bless one another in the sharing of the fruit that he produces for his glory. Like literally, like we're a picture of Eden to this broke and dying world. Like God has been so kind to us. So would we work as a family to love one another? As friends compelled, right, towards unity, towards sacrifice, because God has richly lavished us with his love. And lastly, brothers and sisters, Jesus is the true vine and his father is the vine dresser. So then let us act for harvest as we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and remember the mission of Christ he has entrusted to us as we wait his return. Verse 16 of John 15 says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. The purpose of God's election, brothers and sisters, is that disciples would be set apart with the mission to go from where we are planted to bear fruit that will last. Like, we've been blessed with this revelation of the true vine. Like, you've heard it. And this good news of salvation. So let's, like, joyfully, like, sacrificially go abiding in the power of Jesus, proclaiming his great saving work to the lost. The story of God's vineyard began with God and, it, and it's going to end with God when he returns. Worship and his glory filling the whole earth, it, it's the goal here. It's the aim of our existence. So by his grace, would we be willing to grind and be used to accomplish his purposes? Our passage in verse 16, 17 ends with prayer, asking God, right, to give us this fruit. So, so let's pray. Let's, let's, let's close this service 
and let's seek his face, asking God to bear fruit for his glory. Lord, I, I know this was a long one, God, and, and I thank you for the patience <laughs> of uh, my sweet family and, and helping me grow and, and bear fruit as we abide in you together. I just pray, Lord, that in the midst of this time, in the midst of the words that were proclaimed, that, Lord, you would show yourself to be the true vine who nourishes this body and gives us all that we need to bear fruit on mission, grinding for your glory. Would we see the vine dresser as a loving father who prunes us, who disciplines us, who cares for us, that we would not go mission adrift, Lord, or mission creep, but that we would continue to remain in Jesus, bearing fruit, loving one another in this congregation as a witness to this broken world of the great love that you have lavished and poured upon us that makes us friends of God and friends of one another. Blessed be your name, O God. Bless us this day, I pray, as we, we go and scatter. And bless us, Lord, as we return. What a gift, Lord, for Vespers to be able to hear your word anew and, and contemplate as a body how we practically live this out by the power of your spirit. Help us in our community groups to flush this out. And Lord, ultimately, you are the perfect one who gives fruit to us, who bears fruit for your glory, Lord. So be praised for the work that you will do in this church. Amen.